With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. This is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. This week we have a long discussion very much in the tennis weeds. We're talking about changes to the tennis structure and the transition tour in particular. This is not necessarily the sexiest of topics. This does not involve Roger Federer and Serena Williams and Wimbledon. This is the next level down. And long story short, in response to a number of concerns, one of them match fixing at lower levels, another of them just the financial realities of playing tennis at lower levels, the ITF is taking a fairly dramatic step of whacking, by some accounts, 90% of the slots available for uh, for pro tennis players. And we are now looking at a much different world, a much different way to become a tennis player, much different paths, much different structure. Again, this is the minor leagues. This is not uh, going to impact your enjoyment of Wimbledon. This is not going to impact whether Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic amass ranking points, but it is going to impact the next generation. And so I called on Jeff Grant. Jeff is uh, lives in California and is the father of four competitive tennis players. He'll talk a bit about that. And he was on a USTA committee. And throughout the year, I, I'd heard some concerns. I'd gotten some mail. I'd spoken to a, a former pro whose children are impacted by this transition tour. And essentially, it was, why aren't you talking about this? And I think this is a good conversation. Again, this is very much in the weeds, but I think it's important to assess and really analyze this change that's fairly significant and I think slipped past for two reasons. One of them is because it involved gambling and it involved match fixing and any effort to curtail that was going to get a head start, was going to be applauded. And also because this is pertaining to players that are ranked so far out of the mainstream, so far off the top 100, that this is not the kind of thing that we're chattering about in press conferences or uh, traditional podcasts. So again, this is very much tennis in the weeds, but this is uh 40 minutes or so on the transition tour and some of the concerns and some of the uh, some of the flaws in design, especially how this pertains to junior tennis and college tennis in the United States. Um, we do not expect this to be our most popular podcast, but I think it's an important one. Here's Jeff Grant. This is, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've heard these podcasts. This is going to be a little different, but um, I appreciate your taking the time. And I feel like this is an issue that we've heard murmurings about some of the defects, some of the flaws with this transition tour all year, and it's it's not Federer, and it's not Serena, and it's, it's sort of been brushed aside a little bit. So I was really, um, I was eager to talk about this and get get some perspective here because I feel like this is an issue that people have spoken about casually, but hasn't really been addressed. And suddenly here it is, and this this thing is not theoretical. This is a reality now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are waking up and suddenly and finding out that they're no longer have access to, you know, the pro tennis circuit. Um, you know, we're talking about thousands of players. And, you know, this 
and this is not a surprise. I mean, it's just something that the USTA in particular knew was going to happen and chose to sort of, you know, I guess paper over it or kind of put it in a, try to put it in a positive light. And I don't think a lot of people are prepared for what's, what's happening at this point. And, you know, the fundamentals here are, look, we can argue about, you know, the reasons for doing this. I mean, on Monday it's to make tennis more viable as an economic enterprise. And then on Tuesday it's about integrity. depending on which day of the week you're talking to them about it and who's responded most recently. And so, but what's true is that this has been rushed through at an an incredibly short time frame uh, and really, in my opinion, has not at all been well thought through. And their attitude is sort of, well, you'll fix it as we go along. So so why why don't we back up and talk about your credentials and and how you've come to this issue you uh you, you are not a dispassionate <laughs> observer you you are very much immersed in no. the sport yeah look i've been i've been in the weeds of junior tennis for probably 20 years i mean i've got five kids that range in age from 28 to 17 i always feel compelled to qualify that it's all the same mother um th- yeah two of them played d1 tennis uh mike played at usc he overlapped with Stevie johnson you know, won three national championships. He then went out and played on the Futures circuit for a couple of years, kind of like a two-year postgraduate gap year for him. Uh, Christopher played at Columbia for four years, you know, got four Ivy championships. William the Youngest is going to be starting at Florida in September. And, um, you know, so I've kind of got him in all shapes and sizes, and we've been, you know, sort of, you know, deep in this for a really long time. We started, like, we were in London. We started, my kids started playing when we were in England. Moved to California, spent some time there, and then ultimately, as my kids kind of moved to the East Coast, we kind of gravitated back to Florida. So I've been, you know, and then I, I joined or was asked to join the National Junior Competition Committee in four years ago. For the, for the USTA. Which was, yeah, which was post the, I don't know if you, I don't know if you followed the, you know, there was a series of changes made to national junior competition in 2013, which turned out to be pretty catastrophic. Um, and, you know, we lost 10,000 players in the first year. And so I, I came on the committee, and along with Peter Lebedev and a, and a number of other members, we sort of re, reconstituted the national junior circuit, if you like. And then in the last term, I was Peter was elevated to the chair of the committee and I became the vice chair and, and most of our time over the last 12 months has been spent on this issue um, and you know I won't be joining the, the committee next year um, uh, you know I, it's, it's questionable whether I quit or was fired but I think it's fair to say that that you know we had a, some significant philosophical differences about you know, the impact that these changes are going to have, not just on the relatively small number of pro players that are going to be affected, but kind of the very significant, in my opinion, downstream impacts and in, in junior tennis. And, and really the big the big kahuna is college tennis. That, that's where you think that and, the impact is going to be felt most acutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think junior tennis will be significantly affected. I mean, I think it's, you know, we're heading back to a world where, you know, we're talking about tennis as a, a uber elite sport um you know the itf junior circuit is now the only pathway to pro tennis you know every high you know every top high performing player in every country in the world is going to gravitate to that circuit 
Um, and, you know, that'll have some you know, significant impact on, you know, the integrity of our, you know, uh, you know, domestic pathways, which, you know, traditionally have been, you know, not maybe as strong as the ITF circuit, but, you know, pretty close. You know, when my son was playing, second son was playing 10 years ago and, and he was, you know, fairly, you know, high performance player. Right. You know, there was top USTA national play was pretty interchangeable with mainstream ITF play, you know, with the exception of the Grand Slams, which were obviously uh, stronger. But, you know, you could choose to play U.S. domestic national events or you could choose to play the ITF events and you could end up at the same place, which in his case was getting recruited to USC. So, so let's, and, let's back uh, let's let's back up. though. So so just sort of to, to level set. And, and I think we, we need to stick with this gambling explanation because I've heard that more than anyone that. We have thousands and thousands, you know, 14,000 pros. The, the rankings go deep into the thousands. This is multiple, multiple levels below Federer, Nadal, Serena. These are players with, with often four-figure rankings. We have these low-level events. The purses are small, and there is a huge incentive to corrupt the competition. And that's why we have this, this drumbeat of match-fixing allegations that don't involve the top players, but but guys you've never heard of. So so the ITF has come right. and essentially says we need to cut down on the number of players that are pros. Um, I saw one release that you know, fourteen thousand pro players will now be cut to seven fifty, and the thinking is that this is a way to weed out these corrupt players who who are really tennis hobbyists who they're betting markets for their matches, but they have no chance of ever playing Wimbledon. This is a way to weed out that corruption, that bad headline. And this is also a way to boost the prize money for the select group of players that actually have a viable pro career. So they come up with this transition tour. And like you, I've heard from a lot of people saying this is the most half-baked idea. This is completely flawed. This is an overreaction. But I, I do, I think it's important to sort of set the context and first of all, recognize that in large measure, this is a pushback against these match-fixing allegations. But I, I do want to keep going with you about it's great to say we're going to clean up the sport, but this is not um, this is this is not a zero sum game. I mean, there are there are some losers here. So well, look, there's not there's a great irony here, John. Number one, the you know you want to fix match fixing, just cut off the live scoring, and um, right. uh, you immediately uh, you know that the whole gig changes, right? And and you know the ITF, it turns out one of the largest sponsors was the online betting business. So we're getting all this money from online betting, and now, wow, we've got a betting problem. And you know, it's you know obviously debatable what the magnitude of it is, and 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 you know to some extent, not to, to not to diminish it, but who really cares, right? I mean, my son played two years on the pro circuit after he got out of USC. You know, I think he knows one player that was ever approached to show, to, to throw a match. So. How big a problem is it? The ITF seems to think it's a big problem. You know, you want to solve that problem, then, you know, cut the, cut the live scoring. But, you know, part of the problem for me is they're just, they're just switching one integrity problem for another one. Because the, what's happened now is that an, an ATP point now is going to have enormous value, right? Because right, that's, right. Going to, that's going to establish you as a professional tennis player. You will be able to get into any... 25k, 15k, probably any challenger event. So imagine the kid. Now, and again, now you're putting the incentive, the temptation, if you like, right in the face of the kid, right? 
interesting situation. You get a wild card into a challenge to qualify, right? Winning one match, you now have an ATP point. You know, what's what's the incentive structure here, right? Talk to the guy. He's established. Look, I need to, I want to win this match. It's going to get me going. You know, give you five grand. You know, let's just let's just agree I'm winning, right? There's one problem. That's going to that's people are going to be buying and selling points. And there's just no question that's going to happen. Now, on, on an order of magnitude basis, it might not be as great. But in my opinion, you're, you're, it's a lot worse to incentivize an 18-year-old to cheat than it is to incentivize. It's a 26-year-old journeyman, right, who's got no money, who's languishing at 700. He's right. trying to stay on the tour. And right. some guy comes up to him and says, look, you know, here's a couple of thousand bucks. I need you to throw this match, right? And, and then imagine the other junior, and we can talk a little bit more about this later, but now you're in a situation where there's only one way to pro tennis, which is through the IT of junior circuit. And then when you, when you, and then and you have one year to try out, right? This is what's, it's almost unimaginably silly, right? So they've set up a system where the only way you can become a pro or a pre-pro player is through the IT of junior circuit and using one of these five dedicated spots. Now, you know, the average player, the average junior who's 18 goes out and plays his first future. Very few people win their first match, right? I mean, you take, for example, Stevie Johnson, right? He didn't ever play an ITF event. He got out in the futures circuit. It yeah, took after, him eight, after college. Took, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, but it took him eight tries. And remember, he was 22 right. or 21. He took him eight tries to get two points. So think of the junior now who's coming up against his 19th birthday, right? And the the number he needs, the ranking number he needs to get to make sure he can get into, uh, you know, a 15K event without his junior ranking, which disappears on his 19th birthday, is 750, call it, right? And he's at 850. And he really needs to get to the semifinals of this tournament to get those points to get to 750. Well, what, what's his, you know, what's his temptation? And if they think that that's not going to become epidemic, they're fooling themselves, and now we're just we're putting the we're putting the kids in the in the in a situation where, where the temptation is going to be put in front of the eighteen year old, which to me is is just a dramatically worse place to be than worrying about the twenty six year old who's trying to figure out where his next week's travel yeah, plan right, is coming from. Right, right. You know, and and so you know, so there's that, and then and then so that's that's the that's my view on the integrity stuff, right? I mean, yeah, okay, we're not going to it's not dismissible, but there are other ways to fix this. And then the second one is the economics. Okay, we you know tennis too hard to make a living. We've got to make the economics better, and blah blah blah. And so what have they done? They've just if they've just ejected the bottom ten thousand players, right? Now those players didn't feed in any of the prize money i mean they were i can tell you if you're ranked 1800 you are not earning any prize money right right so they're taking nothing out of the prize money pool nothing um so the prize and and then but then you think about what's happening so it's the same the same players that are actually earning any prize money are still the same players but the changes and they, these numbers are pretty dramatic right the if, if we look at the first quarter schedule the um number of tournaments being hosted is down 35%. So what that means is going to be, if that, if that persists through the rest of the year, we're going to lose 260 tournaments. That's $4 million less in prize money, $2 million less in entry fees, and 
when you factor in the lower draw sizes, it means a loss of about 45,000 playing spots. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's so, much about the opportunities lost as, as the dollar figure right. is a small level. Yeah, so, you know, so what if I show up and get a wild card and I, I hack around for, for about, I can tell you, none of my kids ever complained about double bageling a, a guy in the first round. You know, if you've got to work through four rounds of qualities. But I mean, it's beside the point. The ITF's view is, well, none of these people are really pro players, so we've got to get rid of them. But, you know, the reality is they're not taking any money from anybody. And the fact is they're putting a bunch of money into the system, right? They're putting $2 million of, pri- of entry fees on the table. They're, you know, they're, 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 um, they're staying in the, in, in the tournament hotel. They're, buying lunch at the tournament site. They're getting a racket strung. They're buying some equipment there. Maybe they have a coach, you know, it's, you know, they're contributing to the tennis economy. Sure. And so, you know, my, unless, unless the ITF has better maths than I do. And I, you know, I'm a math major, you know, everybody's losing here. Now, you know, it's possible that the number of ranking of these quote unquote world ranking events go up, but it seems unlikely. And this is, again, this isn't, I think a, an example of where, but basically the IT have made a conscious decision to effectively devalue their product. They are adamant that these events, these now world ranking events, they are not pro tennis events. They can't be advertised as pro tennis events and nobody can call them a pro tennis event. So the guy hosting the 15 K event cannot say this is pro tennis, right? The guy down the road hosts a UTR tournament with 300 bucks of prize money you can have bat, bat, you know, you can have, you know, stuff all over the court saying pro tennis played here. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? I mean, why? What do you gain, right? If the, you know, let's let's take Zimbabwe. I happen to come from Zimbabwe, so I'm sort of sense, I you know, kind of have a soft spot for it. You know, they hosted about four or five pro circuit events. You know, they the federation pulls some money together and. Sure bunch of South Africans come up to play the events and they get to call it pro tennis. Now there's not a lot of other pro tennis in, in Harare, you know, so why would you not let them call it pro tennis? You know, what difference does it make? You know, I mean, nobody gains from it. I mean, other than they can say it's now, you know, uh, we have a select group of professional tennis players. I mean, the, the most, the guy earning the most, the guy ranking, the benefit of being ranked fifteen hundred is you get a discounted tennis warehouse. That's about it. <laughs> right. No, you you see this with the match fixing too. When you look at you, you see this salacious headline and so and so is facing a lifetime ban, then you say this is terrible, and then you look at the guy and he's has less than a thousand dollars in career prize money. And you say <laughs> we, we, we don't condone match fixing, but let's let's sort of uh let's let's define our terms here. This this guy is no more a pro then, you know, my, my daughter is a pro musician because she made a few bucks at her at her high school clarinet concert. Um, but let's let's move on to because I think this is a, a critical point. And I think your point about incentives is um, I, th- I think your point about incentives is really interesting that we're just shifting the incentive. But you think college tennis in the United States is a big loser here. Well, yeah, that? a couple of reasons. So, yeah, a couple. Of, let's just look at how you now get into the pro tennis world. Now, I mean, the, the, what's happened is the pendulum has swung from one extreme to the other. I mean, right now, it's really easy to become a pro tennis player. All you need to do is win a round in a 15k. Maybe you got a wild card. Maybe you got through a couple of qualifying matches. Maybe you got lucky. You know, it's pretty easy, right? Once you've got that one point, you're on the bandwagon. You pretty much get into any tournament you want. You know, but then you've got to win some matches, right? I mean, if you don't win any matches, you're not going anywhere. 
And so the system was sort of set up in a way that it was intentionally uneconomical for the guy ranked 600 because you don't want him, if he's languishing at 600 for two or three years, he, you want him out of there. And let the market get him out because he's not going to earn any money. If you're good enough, you should advance quickly through the futures world, get into challengers, start getting qualities of grand slams, and actually start to make enough money to earn a living. I mean, that's the way the system works. And it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. So now they've, they've gone to totally the other extreme where it's, it's possible that it's virtually impossible to become a pro tennis player. Um, because there's so few events and the, and the draws are so small, it's likely that you're going to have to have a world ranking in order to get in to even qualifying. Whereas right now, a lot of spots are open for players that don't have points but have a national ranking. So right. given that assumption, which is a good assumption, there's now only two ways in, right? You get a wild card um, from uh, you know the federation or the sponsor or the host or whatever it is, or you get in through one of the five reserved spots from juniors. Um, to me, the wild card pathway is, uh, I, I just dismiss it. I don't think it's functional. The wild cards are spread too. You think it's just a de minimis? I mean, we're, we're talking about. Yeah, and they're spread too widely around. Yeah, I mean, exactly. to, you know, to, you know, I think it's encouraging that one of the US, things the USTA has done is they have created some objectivity surrounding how they'll distribute them. They've created these sort of linkages between tournaments and wild cards. But the reality is getting one or two is not going to get you anywhere. You're going to need a lot more than that to gain the points to sort of achieve escape velocity, if you like, like a plane running down yeah, the you, runway. You, if you, you, you only get Stevie, up to uh, Stevie Johnson, probably the most decorated college tennis player of all time, and you're you're telling me he needs yeah he would have needed eight. Yeah. So on, and and also a wild card that you can't really play. It's not a path where you can plan. Right. Uh, you can't sort of right. sit down, work out a schedule, and say that's what I'm going to do. So that leaves the IT of junior circuit, right? So there are five spots in all of the 15Ks that are reserved for juniors if you're ranked in the top hundred. So let's think about the junior as he's approaching his 19th birthday. He's got to use those five spots and he's got to get enough wins to get enough points. So his ranking is at a level that keeps him self-sufficient. So if you think about that for a second, I mean, just take a step back, right? You need to be an established pro tennis player by the day you turn 19. If you're not, the day after you turn 19, it's over. There's no do-over. There's no second chance. It's just bad luck. You're out, right? Right? Because there's no other way in, right? And what does it mean to be established? Well, again, that's debatable. I mean, we're going to see over the next few months what the cutoffs look like, but it's you know it's going to be something like ten or fifteen points, right? And it's not that easy to get that number of points. You know, you got to you know you kind of got to get through a few quarterfinals. You got to win some rounds. You, you know, it's not easy, right? And and to make that, I mean, most players, especially an 18-year-old junior, you know, on average, going to take you four or five tries to kind of get a win, unless you're really lucky. Right, right. You know, and then so, 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 you know, you're kind of stuck with a situation that that you're going to, you've got a tough, tough journey. But it's even worse than that because they made a decision against, you know, advice that that I think people gave them, which was, you want to do it this way. Why don't you timestamp the top hundred ranking at the end of the year? And let those kids have a full year of runway to try to get established. But no, they decided, again, this is a, a decision that has no, is only downside and no upside. They made a decision to run it, you know, consecutively. So a player not only has to get the points required 
to get into the, the tournaments on his own, but he's got to keep his ITF ranking as well. So, you know, let's say you did well in last year's grade A in Brazil, you know, and losing those points is going to drop you either way down in the top 100 or even out of the top 100. You've got to get back to Brazil. Now, it's a 24-hour trip. Um, it's $4,000 airfare. And, you know, if you think about the junior's mindset, it's like, you know, I won this tournament last year. What am I doing here? Right, right. You know, right. so you, you've gone from, gone from a structure where there's almost no barrier to entry to one where it may be almost impossible. So how many players is that is that structure going to yield every year? In my opinion, not very many. You know, so... But for, it, for the it, other players, you know, actually, as as you uh, as you were speaking, I, I called up the, uh, the the Wake Forest men's tennis uh, roster, just picking right. a successful program at random. And um, yeah, you you would not know that the school was located in North Carolina if you just looked at the provenance of the players. If I am, yeah, you know, if I'm a 17 year old from Montenegro or from Cyprus or Tel Aviv or from Tashkent or from Split Croatia, where this roster all has players. Um, I'm looking for a college scholarship before I'm schlepping myself to Brazil or trying to risk uh, going broke chasing that one ATP point. Right. That's, you you well, made that, my decision that's, that's, very easy. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, basically, college tennis here is the elephant in the room, right? If you think about it right now, in my opinion, college tennis is going to be hit with a tsunami of foreign players, Right. All those thousands of players that have been ejected from the ITF pro circuit, you know, are going to suddenly look around and college tennis is going to look really attractive, right? I mean, so, you know, the official numbers that, uh, you know, Wake Forest, one I've looked at as well, you know, the official numbers are that 55 to 60% of D1 college players are foreign. You know, if you dig a little deeper and look at the starting spots, exactly. the number is more like 70%. Now, right. you look at Wake Forest, I think they've got 15 kids on their roster. Eight of those are Americans. One American played. Right. So is that a majority American team? Probably not. And so, you know, and, and here, let me, there's another little stat that I, I like to throw out. You know, Fran, I just looked at France, one country, right? And um, they have 65 players with a current ATP ranking below 750 who are of college age. In other words, we're age between 18 and 22. Big chunk of those 65 players are out of luck. So, what are they going to do? They're going to pick up the phone to Brian Boland or Wake Forest and say, you know, what can you do for me? I've got a 14 UTR. I can play number three for your team. You know, it's, you know, so, I mean, I, you know, I think we're at 70% now. If we're not at 80 plus percent in two years, I'll come back on, John, and I'll eat a bug. You'll, you'll eat a bug. I'll eat a bug. Yeah. No, but I, but I think I mean, there's this whole we, – we, we keep talking about incentives, and the incentive structure now, it, it just seems so obvious for that 17-year-old kid. As you say, you're, you're better off going to Waco, Texas, or, or going to, uh, to Wake than trying to chase what is hardly a sure thing, trying to chase that uh, one point. I mean, I, I guess I, I got two, two questions I, I want to throw at you, which is – Let's talk about the Stevie Johnson of today. I mean, I have a friend. His daughter is going to go play college tennis, and her plan is upon graduation, she's going to give it a go and try and see if she can make it on tour, as so many college players have. What happens to Stevie Johnson in 2019 
when he's done. I mean, he unless, finishes a college he's career. Done. Unless, unless, I mean, look, the USDA is going to have to pick and choose among the players they're willing to give a significant number of wild cards to. So, you know, again, there's, there's some that are allocated on a formulaic basis based on what tournaments you make, and then there's some that are reserved. But, you know, the total number... If you do, if then figure out well how many does a player need to get to have a realistic chance of succeeding, right? It, it leaves you it leaves you with the ability to help very few players. My one of the last questions that came up before I departed was how many players do you think you're going to help, and the answer was eleven, right? And that's kind of so. You know, Stevie Johnson may have made it over the hump, but you know a lot of others are not going to be able to do that. I mean, so the idea of I'm going to play for a couple of years and I'm going to try my hand at the pro tennis was pretty much over for pretty much every college tennis player without, with the exception of a very, very few. So, so you made a very, and, well, I mean, so what, what is, I mean, I guess what I'm really getting at is you make a very compelling case. I mean, some of this is honestly, some of this is just basic behavioral economics and you're, you, you, wrote me a, a lengthy email that I think makes a very compelling case why this is a bad idea. When you presented this to the USTA, what were the objections? I mean, how, how was this allowed to uh, have gotten the USTA certification, and what sort of how, – how were your arguments yeah, countered? I mean, the, the, the answer was we had no choice. Um, when you pressed further on that, it was like we agreed that we would sign on to the – Tennis Integrity Unit's uh, recommendations. The ITF in 2017 brought a guy on board to design this system. You know, what disappointed me was in this whole process was that USTA just sort of seemed to shrug their shoulders and said, well, nothing we can do about it. Let's just try to make the best of a bad situation. There was very little pushback in a meaningful way to say one of two things. Look, maybe this needs to be done, but to try to do this in a year and a half. Right, right. And, you know, what what is the urgency of getting this done? Is it because Dave Haggerty wants to tick the box while he's president? Or, you know, what what is the motivation? And, you know, as you and I know, there's, you know, tennis, you know, tennis governance is just a lots of conflicts of interest, right? I mean, there's, you look at the USTA governance structure and the committees and look at the committee chairs and, you know, the committee chairs are tournament directors, their coaches, their players, their parents, et cetera. And they all, you know, contribute a lot and they put a lot of time in. But, you know, a lot of them have, a big part of their bread is butted by the USTA. And so when a hard conversation has to be had, right. the incentive to have it is just not there. And I think that's kind of what we found was that, you know, nobody really wanted to listen. It was just like, let's just not rock the boat here. And yeah. and so that 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 was what I think frustrated me the most. I mean, I we were, I guess, you know, I was sort of we were not me alone. There was a subcommittee of us, and I think we all came to the same conclusion, which was more or less the sky is falling, guys. At least you should look up. Yeah, you you mean about this issue specifically? Yeah, yeah, about what to do, and you know, how much pushback, what changes to, you know, how do we? The attitude seems to be well. It's going to happen. Make the best of it. It'll probably change. You know, the problem where I sit is that my experience with these kind of things is you do a lot of collateral damage in that period when you're just in this sort of really, really badly designed system. Right. And and sometimes, you know, so the, the change the U.S. made in 2013, ironically, 
under the leadership of Dave Haggerty, which were frankly catastrophic, you know, we never got those 10,000 players back. You know, and so it was, you know, we rebuilt the system in a, in a way that we think is attractive, but, you know, we lost a lot of, we lost a lot of players. And, you know, if you come back to the college thing, right, I mean, you think downstream in terms of this, right, it's college tennis suddenly, we suddenly find ourselves at 80 plus percent foreign players in college tennis. You know, I, you know, growing up in Southern California, got to know Wayne Bryan, you know, and every conversation with Wayne Bryan was that the way to get your kid playing tennis is take him to a college tennis right, match. Right, right. Right. Love the atmosphere. It's exciting. And, you know, when you show up at the college tennis match and the, the number one players from Montenegro and the number two players in Syria and the number three players from, I don't know, Kazakhstan, you know, it's going to be hard for that to be really to really excite a young American potential. Well, tennis I, I mean, I think I think the real point there is not sort of who's playing, but just this you, you're taking away a huge <laughs> incentive. I mean, so many kids go into sports now. Not to be LeBron James, but the college scholarship is the great carrot, right? And right, it's it's the experience of college sports, and it's defraying the expense. And I think it's a huge issue. And the other thing too is, if I'm an athletic director and I'm looking at my Wake Forest tennis roster and I have to make some cuts, and seven of the top eight kids are not American, you've just made my decision very easy. But I, I just I'm just hung up on this USTA role, and I, I think look, we could do a whole podcast on the flaws in the USTA and how structurally it's, it's untenable. I mean, I always get a kick out of it when the USTA president says, my board, the, the board is supposed to be there not to rubber stamp you, but to safeguard. I mean, a, a right. Traditional right. I think board fun, governance is not uh, necessarily collaborative. Yeah. But um, but I, I just, I can't figure out why. It seems to me that you look, you delve deeper into this transition tour and you realize American tennis is a big, big loser here. And I, I can't for the life of me figure out what resistance, when you said, guys, the sky's falling in, I don't advise this at all, what, I'm just trying to figure out what the justification would possibly have been for the USTA to not have fought this tooth and nail. John, you just have to ask them, because I couldn't, I couldn't get an explanation that made any sense to me. I mean, it just didn't, none of it. I spoke to Katrina Adams about this. I spoke to Tommy Ho. You know, we had a, we did a conference call, our subcommittee, uh, which originally was supposed to be just uh, the broader junior comp committee. It ended up with Gordon Smith, Stacey McAllister, Martin Blackman, you know, all the great and the good of USTA. And, you know, we made effectively the sort of same presentation and said, look, this is going to be a real problem, not just for the kids that are getting kicked out of pro tennis, but the downstream impacts. I mean, you look at junior tennis, for example, you know, Basically, the ITF circuit now is the only way to go. If you want to have good tennis competition, all of our top players are going to go to the ITF system. The way the system's set up, you've got to go from five to four to three to two to one to eight to Grand Slam, right? So that means you've got to start early. You've got to, you're a 14-year-old guy, got to get himself to Guatemala for the grade five, you know, get a few points and get himself going. And, you know, it's, it's enormously expensive. It's time-consuming. You've pretty much got to be homeschooled. You know, if you're a kid who doesn't have the resources, you're basically out of luck. And the problem, not only out of luck for pro tennis, but out of luck for college tennis as well. Because, you know, if you think about it, and, and we see this now, we see the hard numbers on this, right? Again, if I go back 10 years, looking at my personal experience, the, the standard, the level of, say, a grade two ITF event relative to a, a level two USTA event was not much different. Right. So you, you could advance to a, a college-level standard. If you went to the Easter Bowl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Right. Yeah. So you need a like you need a UTR of I know, let's say let's say thirteen three to to start in a Power Five conference, right? But if you know the, the average UTR of the participant in the Clay Court National Champions this year was twelve point two. Now it's going to be hard to get a UTR of thirteen three playing against guys that are twelve point two. So effectively, we're not going to provide the level of competition. Without that's leaving the required country. to right. get to the right. standard, right? I mean, right. it's like it's like saying I want to go to Harvard. Harvard requires me to do six APs. My school doesn't offer six APs. I've got two choices: I can give up on Harvard, or I can change schools. Or, or so, if you're wealthy enough, you can go go to a school in another country where you can pick up those right. credits. But that's right. a small subset, obviously. So we're heading down the we're heading way back into the elite. You know, tennis is elite money sport. You know, the the guy. The middle class family who kid wants to stay in regular school cannot afford the four grand to send his kid to Brazil and the Federation's not picking up the tab. You know, he's looking at this and saying, I, you know, I got to I'm going to I'm going to try baseball. Right. And um, and because and then, you know, I think, you know, again, in my you know, I'm not I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, I, I think we're heading to squash. Right. Which is a, you know, in, in a junior world, it's a fringe sport. No, I thought, I thought that was a. Uh, I thought that was a South African expression. You you mean uh, you mean the sport of squash, which is yeah, uh, sport of squash. a, a yeah, terrific actually, sport. Actually, but yeah, small, yeah, I, yeah right. I played squash, not tennis. And my my kids all played tennis. I played squash, but you know, squash is a fringe sport in the United right. States. It's it's populated by the ultra elite, who are, you know, using the sport as a vehicle to access Ivy League education. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, we can. I can see a pathway where we sort of end up there. It's just the rich kids who can afford to travel, can afford to play the ITF event, afford the coaching, will get the UTRs required for the right college, get the recruiting, and and that's that. And we, and you know, it could mostly be Ivies because you know, the Ivies are not offering scholarships, and they're you know they're, they're you know pretty close to the top you know top level of D1 tennis these days. Um, and but if you you need to have really good grades to get in, so that's you know that's a, that's a, a pathway. But you know the final point is if, you know the, the existence of UTR, which has obviously now become kind of the go-to benchmark for college coaches in terms of their recruiting. Um, you know now makes it pretty easy, if not costless, to recruit the kid from Montenegro, right? You just you need a UTR account yeah. and you need a Facebook page, right? Just, and you you look him up and he's co- yeah, you're plugging in data. Yeah, you. you yeah, you get his, you put in his number, and you see this is what he is, and connect with him on Facebook, ask him to send a video of himself, see what his grades are, and the next thing you know, you've got your number three player. Gotcha. Um, let's. We're we're almost out of time. I mean, I again, I'm, I'm hung up, and you, and you, you're saying, I just want to, you, you're saying there's data available already, even 2019 well, about how this is already impacting draws. Yeah, I mean, so so right now, there's the first quarter schedule is out, right? So as I said, there's less, there's. 35% less tournaments than this time last year. The draw size is much smaller, so 45,000 spots have gone. So, I mean, it doesn't take a math genius to know that getting into those tournaments is going to be a lot harder. And so, you know, I think, you know, we're going to have to see where the cutoff settle, right, to, to figure out how hard it's going to be to achieve self-sustainability, but it's not going to be easy. And I think, you know, these tournaments are not, you know, again, 
again, inexplicable to me. Why would you degrade your product? I mean, why not call it a pro tennis event? I mean, who cares? Yeah, I mean, that's, we, we haven't even talked about that, but I don't know if, if you're running the uh, – p- p- pick a challenger. You're running the Tallahassee Challenger, and suddenly the economics are so different and the field is so different. I'm, I'm not sure this is a viable business model for uh, all of these $50,000, $100,000 events. But um, Yeah, I mean, think about the ATP as a business, right, and, and your players are the employees. Now, there's no business in the world who would basically say to themselves, I'm going to – I'm going to limit my recruiting pool to a hundred kids. That's I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose my future pro tennis players, my future ATP players. I'm going to be chosen each year from this hundred kids. Right. Why, why? Why put? Yeah. I mean, again, why, why in, would you do that? The way the way it was explained to me was first of all, we've got to deal with this integrity issue. It's terrible for the sport when. Week in, week out, we have match-fixing allegations, and also there are way too many players calling themselves pros. If you've got 100 McDonald's franchises and 60 of them are losing money, you have no qualms about shutting them down. Why should this be any different? That's two explanations I was given, well, but it does seem like well, this yes, is— if you're, uh, if, you're running a, if you're running a McDonald's franchise, you're losing money. You know, and if you just decide, you know, I love, being a, I love running a McDonald's, and I'm just going to keep it open. Right. I mean, what does it matter? Yeah, take, right? take a libertarian. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, OK, you know, so that's that's where the system was set up. Basically, it was set up to be uneconomical for a player to languish in the four five, six hundreds for any period of time. I mean, my rule of thumb always, always used to be, look, once you see, you know, once you seriously start trying to play pro tennis, whether it's post-college or whenever it is, you need to be. The mindset needs to be, I've got to be out of the futures world in 12, maximum 18 months. Right. I've got to be good enough, get enough wins, get enough points. I've got to be in the challenger world. i got to be, you know, and I went through this with Daniel Wynn, who's very, very close to us, and, and he went through that. I mean, he basically got himself, you know, got some financial support in his first couple of years, got himself through the early stages, got into the challenger world. He was able then to basically sort of pay his way. I believe he's wasn't getting rich. Um, you know, he made it at, you know, his best year, he made the grand slam qualities of all four grand slams and, you know, the first round loser gets 10 grand or something. So, you know, you're sort of there, you're, yeah. you're self-sufficient, but right. you've had to earn that, you know, you've had to earn that you're, you're pushed your way through it and, and, um, you end up with a, um, you know, you, you end up in an economic place. And if you, if, it, if the economics don't work, if you're the McDonald's franchise that doesn't make money, eventually you just got to shut down. Right. But that's all right. Well, the, uh, the, the football guys are coming into this room. I could talk about this for a uh, for a long time. Again, this is not Federer. This is not Nadal. This is not Serena. But I think this is a important existential issue that um, a lot of people are going to be very surprised when they realize just how radically this game has, has changed at this sort of subcutaneous, you know, sub-150 level. Um, but I really, yeah, I really I, appreciate I, you laying this out because, again, this is something we've heard from parents. I've heard from readers. And you're the first person that's really sp- – Spelled it out in, in detail, and I think it's important. So, I uh, I'd love to come back. I'd love to come back, that. John, and, and have have uh, you know anybody in the ITF wants to stand around, stand along to, to to debate it, you know, point by point. Deal. We can uh, we can set that up. And no, I mean I'm I'm eager to see how the um, the ITF and USDA in particular responds to this. I certainly get their press releases and I see the justifications, but um, like you, some pretty basic math and some pretty basic analysis of incentive. And you realize there's some pretty serious imperfections here. Um, 
So let's let's keep the conversation going. I really appreciate this, um, and let's let's see what happens here. Thanks, Sean. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Jeff for walking us through that, spending some time with us. Again, he obviously comes at this uh, very partially, but he also was part of the committees that said, as he put it to the USTA, listen, the sky's falling down. You may as well look up. Uh, we'll see how this plays out, but I think Jeff raises a number of points. I think college tennis in particular is really adversely impacted by this transition tour. Again, this is a topic that's been brewing. It's very much sort of an inside tennis conversation. A lot of junior tennis, a lot of tennis parents concerned about this. This is not something that Roger Federer is necessarily going to get asked about, so perhaps it's slipped through the cracks a bit, but I was happy we had a chance to uh, address it at some length and complexity. Um, Jamie. I will uh, bring you in. I will not ask you to uh, delve into the nuances of this transition tour, but I, I do think you, you look at players. I will say this. You look at players at the top of the sport today at the Williams sisters and you know, Rafa Nadal and we just sort of go, go through the list. And you do wonder if this standard existed today and if these requirements and this new structure existed, would they have become pro tennis players? And how differently would their junior years have been? How different would their path have been? It's an interesting thought exercise. But the bottom line is, this is really going to impact the sport in, in a fundamental way. And I think because it is beneath the surface, because this is not Indian Wells and the U.S. Open, but rather this is, you know, the Aptos Challenger. And even below that, this is, you know, low-level events in Croatia. Um, we're not talking about it. So anyway, I, I will not, uh, we, we can transition out of this and, and talk about um, happier, more mainstream topics, but I am happy we had this discussion. I agree. It's a good point. And it's an interesting discussion to have. And like in any kind of place, the younger generation is the future generation. And so that says it all. Yeah. I mean, you think about this with other lines of work and if suddenly right, you can't major in journalism, right. what does the field of media look like going forward? That exactly. may not impact, you know, Brian Williams and Anderson Cooper, but that's the first kind of place my mind went. Um, just thinking about uh, in a, the reference you said, this is a sweeping change. Um, all right, this is our last podcast for the year. I will uh, wish everyone happy holidays. Right now, you included, Jamie. Um, let's you just too. sort of take take us out. We'll, we'll do a little preview. I think we're going to start before we go to Australia. Um, we will name check Chris Everett, so she will feel uh, all the more compelled <laughs> to uh, to come on and, and talk. But what uh, give me Three or four storylines that you will be uh, eagerly following in 2019. Sure. Uh, let's start. I'll start with a random one, one that's kind of been on my mind today. Andy Murray. We haven't talked about him much, but I think uh, it'll be interesting to see 2019, how, how it turns out for him. He obviously is coming back from that hip injury. I feel like maybe not as bad as Djokovic, but he is in a similar place Djokovic was at this point last season where 2019 is really going to be and continue to be a rebuilding year for him. So can he kind of make this miraculous comeback that Djokovic did? I think it's much tougher of a challenge for him considering just the physical state of his body and, and kind of the injury he had to come back from. But he's someone who is still so dominant and has the ability to be dominant. So interested to see what's in store for Andy Murray for 2019. Are you following him on Instagram and, yes. uh, and if he extent, if, Twitter? If he does happen to retire or step away from the game after 2019, he has a good second career ahead of him. As a as a what? As, as, a, as a commentator, oh, as a broadcaster, oh, as no. an analyst. You hope uh, 
he stays in the sport long term sure. as his mother has. He's I'm looking here. He's two fifty seven. Um, even with protections and wild cards, that is a big big number. Um, hip injuries in tennis, um, not to be taken lightly, but at the same time, Andy Murray did show some signs. He played some very nice sets of tennis in the fall. We'll see where he is. Certainly, if you look at his Instagram, um, he's a long way from uh, from packing it in. So uh, that's good. What about uh, what about the women's side? I was going to bounce it to you. Give me one men, and then we'll go women. Um, no, I mean, I think the, the overwhelming storyline is they all kind of blend together. One of them is who's going to stop the, uh, the Djokovic train. Right. And tied to that is can we finally see some big three pushback? And I wrote about this a few weeks ago. Like, we, we all love Djokovic. We all love Federer. We all love Nadal. These are once-in-a-generation players, and we're blessed that they're three-in-a-generation. These may well be the three best players ever, so let's get that out of the way. That said, it's really time the rest of the field steps up. And you talked about Murray. Uh, Stan Favrinka is obviously a, a Hall of Fame player, but other than that, time for some of the uh, the 20-somethings to start landing a few blows. And I felt like last year was in some ways a celebration of these three great players. Once again, all in their 30s, they divvied up the four majors, but I felt like it was tinged a little bit of a, with a sense of, come on, guys, whether it's Zverev or team or you know, the, the wayward Grigor Dimitrov, time for somebody to mount a little bit more resistance. So I, I think I'll, I'll sort of cheat and tie those together. I mean, Djokovic obviously comes to Australia gunning for his third straight major. Right. But tied to that, the corollary is, is someone going to announce themselves uh, that hasn't won a couple of these before? For sure. And I think, so mine on the men, on the women's side brings in a few people as well. But going off what you're saying, the younger women, those 20-somethings women, really did make a statement in 2018. I mean, Naomi Osaka, obviously, but I think you can put Sloane Stevens in that category as well. 25, but still in that group. Didn't win a major, but solid, very, very solid top 10 season. Right. And so I think um, those are two players that I am going to be keeping an eye on and really interested to see. Specifically, I think all eyes will be on Naomi Osaka. Um, She just, her celebrity has just boomed over the past couple months, and that's going to put some enormous pressure on her in 2019 and I think Sloan Stevens as well as you said had a good season um still kind of had that roller coaster way but she's she's sort of how she rolls exactly um so I think those two will be interesting and and kind of juxtaposed against that I'm always this has been like a you know new year storyline forever but Serena Williams will and Maria Sharapova will kind of these two people in the sport that have carried it for so long that are getting possibly towards the end of their careers. They're in very different places. Um, I'm always curious to see how the two of them will fare, uh, you know, in majors, but also in outside of their lives, um, outside of their tennis lives off the court. Um, So those are kind of my Four people grouped uh, together into one. I like that. I would add a third party to that uh, latter category and include Venus as well. Okay, yeah. Um, Seven majors. It's been a while. She just made some wholesale changes in her life. One of them was um, parting ways with her longtime coach, David Witt. Uh, Any insight on that? Um, I think I was told Venus made some wholesale changes. I'll leave it at that. All right. Um, It was uh, a week of change for her, a month of change. Um, and I, I think it's eager. I'm eager to see. I mean, Simona Halep has basically said, I'm going to try and go this alone. I'm curious to see what Venus does. At this stage in the game, 
what does she really need a coach for? That said, their logistics, their scouting, it's not as simple as uh, come over your forehand cross court. I don't think this is technical advice at this stage. Um, Sloan Stevens is in a precarious situation with her coach. I mean, there, there are a lot of coaching changes. We'll see which of those uh, bear fruit and which of those don't. Um, I, I mean, I think tied to that, there's a, sort of this overarching question. I was actually just writing about this a little bit on my flight. Um, I think there's just this overarching question of it's very possible that within the next, say, 18 months after the 2020 Olympics, there will be majors played with no Federer, no Serena, no Venus, no Sharapova, no Nadal. You hope they all play till they're 100. This is not to suggest uh, time's a ticking. I mean, we you never want to retire anyone prematurely, but I think tennis is in for a big pivot, a big transition. And I think if you said, listen, the, the choice is you're going to get Roger Federer and Serena and Nadal, and among them they're going to win 60 majors, and there are going to be a few years when they retire that are going to be some some lean years, and we're going to have to wait for new champions. You'd say, I'll sign up for that. Give me that over parity. I'll take three legendary players and deal with a couple years of, uh, of fallow fields. But I do think uh, there are going to be some really interesting changes ahead for uh, for tennis when these great stars, these just towering figures. I mean, again, you're talking Serena Federer Nadal. You're talking about 60 majors. Right. and That's, it's, that's a big loss. And there's a a possibility that it all happened at one time, um, which is even... Tokyo 2020. Yeah, that's even more impactful. Yeah, it's, it's dramatic when it happens all at once. Yeah. So. Um, well, who knows? I mean, you know, we... we uh, six years ago, they were retiring Roger Federer. Right. Look at him now. But <laughs> realistically, you, you can't play forever. Um, all right. That, uh, that does it. I, I feel like I should say something sort of sweeping <laughs> to take us out of the year. It's been fun. Always... Good to have you, Jamie. People don't understand your uh, producing sorcery and how vital you are to this. They only know you from your insightful comments, but you do a lot to uh, thank you help this modest enterprise here. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, for your comments, for your guest suggestions. We have every intention of doing it again in 2019. Happy holidays, and we'll talk in the new year. 